Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. Ken, are you excited? We're going to get to talk about Lizzo today. This is a first for the Serious Trouble podcast. Uh, Yeah, uh, and that was a good suggestion. We actually have a valid connection here, but mostly, Josh, I'm just excited. It was such a week for finding out. Uh, (laughs) Normally, we get to talk about fucking around, and and this was a super big week for finding out. Yes, uh, so... Who found out in the last few days? I guess we have to start with Sam Bankman-Fried, newly convicted felon Sam Bankman-Fried. Are you surprised, Ken, that uh, Sam Bankman-Fried is a convicted felon? I am not. Uh, This seemed to be where this train was going for quite some time. Uh, The big gamble of putting him on the stage to be himself to to testify uh, turned out about the way most people thought it would. And the jury came back with a guilty verdict. They were given the case at 3.15. The judge told them they deliberate till 8. They had a dinner break and they came back at 7.30. Uh, Mm -hmm. So that was swift. So when you say that, you know, for quite some time, it's looked like this was going to happen in a way, it's not quite some time, right? Less than a year ago, FTX collapsed and we're we're just coming up on the one year mark of the implosion of FTX as a firm. And within one year, the Justice Department secured this conviction on a wide variety of very serious charges for the head of FTX. That's like lightning fast for the federal courts, right? It is extremely fast for a federal white collar case. And it's the type of thing that only happens in a situation like this, where something big falls apart and they're sort of forced to move swiftly. Here, the factors making them move unusually swiftly were that SBF, you might recall, was in the Bahamas. I think they had concerns about a lot of the money and assets going away, and they felt they had to move swiftly and get him under control. And that triggered his decision uh, to push for a swift trial. So that's why you had this unusually fast process. You know, as we often say, the federal prosecutors are competitive advantage is a slow, methodical spinning of a web. But here they showed that they were able to put together a case very quickly. Of course, they did so in a case where the guy basically confessed repeatedly in every possible medium. That helps. So it's not like they're playing against the varsity here. But uh, yeah. yeah, Jeffrey Skilling didn't do that in the Enron case. No, no. And in many ways, even though uh, the evidence was complicated, the core idea of the case was not. Right. I mean, it, it's it's interesting because some of the commentary, including from Elon Musk, right, as FTX was imploding, was basically they're not going to go after Sam Bankman-Fried because he was a big Democratic political donor and they're going to protect their friends. And, you know, I mean, obviously that was not true and it was not going to be true. I mean, I guess the, a thing that a federal prosecutor loves more than anything else is a big, high-profile case that's going to be easy to secure a conviction in, right? Absolutely. They love yeah. easy cases. They love uh, publicity. And this gave them everything. Aided, I think, by the press's continuing to sort of infantilize or lionize Sam Bankman-Fried on some level or other, even as he's convicted. So the New York Times referred to him uh, in the lead of a story after his conviction as the tussle-haired mogul. Josh, which I will confess (laughs) caused me to use a rude word during a court call uh, when I was incautiously reading it. So did the the second mentions Twitter account pick that up? The uh, they like the the colorful ways that uh, people are described on second mention in a news article. There was one recently about John Boehner as the wine swilling, cigar smoking former speaker. I think that's a good one for that. It it has that uh, flavor to it, uh, doesn't it? So uh, now uh, Sam Bankman-Fried finds himself uh, convicted. Uh, He will be sentenced. The judge gave the government 
until February to make a decision about the second trial. You might remember that some time ago, the judge severed out some of the government's new charges that they had brought after his extradition. And there's some question about whether or not they need to get the Bahamas acquiescence to adding on these charges. And I think at this point, there's also some a question as to whether they even bother to spend the resources or just say, you know, all these convictions, that's good enough for us. So uh, it wouldn't surprise me if we don't wind up having a second trial on things like him uh, bribing Chinese officials for $10 million or, or that type of thing. What's the point of trying him over more offenses when he faces up to 115 years in prison for these offenses? Okay, I know you're trolling me there. I'm that's, not going to rise the statutory the maximum sentence is 115 years. Maximum he's he's okay. going to be like 150 when he gets out of prison. To answer the real question first, sometimes you want to belt and suspenders it. So if you think that the conviction you have is maybe not completely secure, you might want to go get another conviction. You might think it's important for deterrence to prosecute the other crimes or for other institutional values, particularly when you're talking about high number bribery of foreign officials. On the other hand, it's perfectly legitimate just decide that they're going to go. Now, mm -hmm. Josh, I know you're trying to get me mad. I'm not going to fall for it. So, yes, the statutory maximum <laughs> of all the crimes he's convicted for is over 100 years. But 115. 115. So this is a case where he could very plausibly do life or at least decades in prison. The judge, as always, uh, will have a recommendation from uh, the United States sentencing guidelines, that sort of convoluted, like filling out a tax return set of calculations that recommends a sentence. Here, because of the amount of loss, the amount of fraud at issue, when I go through the guideline calculations, um, most plausible uh, renditions, particularly given that he testified and the judge will think he testified falsely, come out with uh, a guideline range of, you know, 30 years at a minimum or more likely life in prison. Now, mm -hmm. the judge is not bound by that, uh, but I would be surprised if this judge gave him less than multiple decades in prison. And then if there's another trial, then that gets added consecutively on top of that conceivably? It's complicated. Whether it's consecutive or concurrent depends on how the crimes relate to each other, and there's some discretion involved on the part of the judge. But yeah, you could add on more, uh, hypothetically. But again, I, I wonder whether the government's going to want to spend the resources in another big trial. I don't know. It's kind of fun, Sam Beckman-Fried. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's fun for him or his parents. Well, but, well, uh... I mean, more, more seriously, though, I mean, going back to the publicity value of this, that, you know, it's prosecutors like these high profile cases where people sort of there's broad agreement that they're doing a good thing by by prosecuting this bad person. Um, there's also, as you note, there are several different kinds of wrongdoing that Sam Bankman Fried engaged in. One is that he stole money from his customers. Another is this, you know, paying off foreign officials. And a third is the various illegal actions that he seems to have taken related to U.S. political uh, donations, where he, you know, had all these schemes to inject money into the U.S. political system. And so you could argue that there's value in bringing attention to the fact that you'll be prosecuted if you do any of those things. I wonder if that's a reason that the, the prosecutors in Southern District of New York who seem quite eager about this case could be eager about more of them. Yeah, I, th those are the factors suggesting they should do the second trial. The factors suggesting they shouldn't is that you get diminishing returns on the publicity and the deterrence and all that once you're doing a second trial of a guy who is going to be going away for decades at best and quite possibly for life. Right. So, uh, you know, they may even work out a deal with him. You never know. Let's talk about Donald Trump in court. 
Um, and we can start with the simpler of these issues, which has to do with the, the gag order down in Washington, D.C. from Judge Tanya Chutkin. Uh, listeners will remember she issued this fairly broad gag order restricting the way that uh, that the former president can talk about potential witnesses in the case and staff in the court and the prosecuting attorneys. She issued a short stay of her order to consider whether to stay at pending appeal. Then she decided not to. Now there is an appeal and uh, the uh, three-judge panel of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals has issued an, an administrative stay that takes the gag order back out of effect, but maybe not for very long. What, what is the, what's the nature of this stay? This stay is not one that is on the merits. It's uh, what's often referred to as an administrative stay, and it's basically very much like the one Judge Chutkin issued. It's to give them time to consider briefing by the parties about whether there should be a more permanent stay during the pendency of the appeal. So uh, the parties will brief that. The court will make a decision, which will be based in part on the merits of the First Amendment argument, and then we'll see uh, what the court thinks of it. And so that's like a matter of days, probably? Or weeks. Okay. But it's it's not a, a lengthy period of time. But it doesn't reflect any merits-based determination of the appeal. Right. Let's talk about New York, because it's been real messy <laughs> wow. in the civil trial uh, before Judge Arthur Engeron uh, this week in New York. I'm, I'm trying to remember, did we, we talked about the thing, no, we haven't talked yet about the thing where he had to expand his gag order to apply not just to Donald Trump, but also to Donald Trump's attorneys, because Trump's attorneys, Chris Kyes and Alina Haba, would not shut up about their concerns about Judge Arthur Engeron conferring with his law clerk, passing, you know, receiving notes from her. Uh, they were alleging that there's some sort of impropriety about this. And the judge is both quite angry and, and also seemed a little bit baffled by, you know, like the the argument is that it's improper for him to consult with his court staff. Like that's what they're there for. It is a completely unhinged argument by Kai's and, and Haba. Kai's is smart enough to know uh, that it's unhinged. I'm not confident that Haba understands that. Uh, but judges have law clerks. They consult with them. They get research from them. They communicate with them. The allegation there's something improper with that is simply completely frivolous. Uh, there's not an honest lawyer in America who thinks that it's a good argument. Uh, but they were leaning hard into it in court in a kind of a defiant, strident, publicity-grabbing way. At this point, and you'll see even more when we talk about Trump's testimony, everything the Trump team is doing there, you can't understand it as trying to win the case. That's not what it's about. It is purely about signaling that they think the the judge, the court, the process, everything is illegitimate. It's a showing of complete contempt for everything. Um, I kind of drew an, anal an analogy to the Chicago 7 trial, where a lot of the, the flamboyant things the defendants were doing were not so much to win but to demonstrate a contempt for the process and the illegitimacy of it. Trump here is just signaling to his base, preparing to get uh, to fundraise off this and continuing his brand by showing that, you know, th this is illegitimate. Th this is a, you know, this is a political uh, uh, hack job. Uh, nothing about it is fair. And so we're going to treat it as something we hold in complete contempt. So that's that's what the defense is about at this stage. And so, I mean, you, I think, correctly lump in Trump's testimony. He's been, you know, he's been testifying in court this week. And what is what has he been doing that's similarly part of that campaign to discredit this process? Well, he was very much acting like Donald Trump on the stand. So he was speechifying, uh, talking 
politics, attacking the prosecutor, attacking the judge, attacking the proceeding, not answering questions, giving long rambling responses off topic, continually re-arguing points the judge has already rejected, all of this stuff. And his attorneys, uh, notably, were very much supporting him and leaning into it. Uh, so when when the judge would say to Kai, you know, you need to control your client, Kai's would say things like, uh, well, you know, it's your courtroom, you need to control it, which is something I would not say unless it was my intention to leave the courtroom in handcuffs. Um, so Kai's and Haba were openly defiant and contemptuous to the judge as Trump was being. And the judge was irritated at them, irritated with Trump, very much sort of the mode of let's just get this over with and, you know, get him to say whatever he's going to say. And he, the judge was even irritated, I think, with the uh, deputy AG who was doing the questioning for not making more of an effort to control the process, not, uh, I guess, asking to strike more testimony, that type of thing. The vibe was just, we know this guy is going to be like this. The vibe was also sort of everyone knows the judge has already made up his mind, which is part of what I think uh, Trump and his team are doing here is that the judge has really signaled what he feels about the case, both uh, verbally and in writing. And it's kind of a polite fiction that Trump's going to give any testimony that's going to make a difference to him. I mean, that seems more or less true, right? Is the, should, yeah. should the judge have done something differently in this process so that that wouldn't be true? No, I mean, the judge ruled on motions. Uh, that's what judges do. Uh, the judge uh, gave indications of how he was feeling, which in a bench trial is not atypical. He probably shouldn't have acted the way he did if it were before a jury, but that's not the case here. Uh, some would say that judges should keep a better poker face and not signal so clearly uh, which way they're feeling about the case. I'm not sure that's true in a case where a judge is wielding equitable powers and discretionary powers and you're really uh, appealing to the judge as sort of a, a decision maker like that. And if anything, I think the judge could have shut Trump down more and, and said basically, uh, okay, if you're not going to answer the question, then I'm striking your testimony. But probably what the judge is thinking is that let's let this guy ramble on. Let's let him say whatever he wants so they can't say that I didn't let him testify and get this all into the record. Well, although the judge did keep interrupting when Trump would go off on irrelevant tangents, I mean, he would just, you know, say irrelevant. Um, so he was he was trying to keep those boundaries to some extent. The argument that Trump and his attorneys have been making is that Trump should be able to offer the defense that he wishes to offer, that he has a First Amendment right um, and that, you know, he is he's a defendant in this proceeding. And how can you deprive him of the right to make the argument that he thinks is the correct argument about why he should not be punished here. Well, that's bullshit. Uh, they, they also raised that argument as to why they should be able to continue to attack the judge's law clerk. Kai's actually said, you know, it's my First Amendment right to raise this argument. That's just not right. You, you don't have First Amendment rights in a courtroom whenever you want, however you want. You know, you don't have a right to make legally invalid arguments repeatedly, especially to a jury but also to a judge. You don't have a right to say, I want to now put on my defense that it was the Jewish space lasers mm -hmm. uh, that caused all this to happen. The judge controls the courtroom. The, the judge makes rulings on what defenses and what arguments are admissible and what aren't. And the courtroom is not an open public forum for speech. It's not a street corner. So, no, you don't have First Amendment rights to say whatever you want in front of a judge and uh, say whatever you want in front of a judge and you'll find that out extremely quickly. 
One thing I find strange about this whole episode is that there's a strong element of Trump's behavior and of the behavior of his attorneys that feels like mugging for the cameras. I mean, when you talk about, you know, you do this to rile up the base, normally if you're giving these sorts of speeches, you want people to be able to see the speeches on social media, on cable news. And here, there's no cameras in the courtroom, and so it's all being filtered through reporting. And even, you know, the imagery that we have is just courtroom sketches. And so you did have, you know, the, the lawyers can speak outside the courtroom. And Alina Haba was, was making some of these arguments on to the press on camera outside the court. But I mean, I guess it's the, the PR strategy that they have available to them. There's just something that feels a little bit silly about mugging for cameras that aren't there. Well, but Trump has always had an exceptional skill at getting the media to carry his water for him to publicize the things he says because the media says, can you believe this guy? How outrageous. And the base eats it up as, can you believe this guy? He's the best. So Trump and his lawyers acting this way, they know it will be widely reported. They know that the same people will say this guy's the worst. They know the same people will say this guy's the best. And they're very skilled at getting that message out there. I mean, Trump, in the middle of his testimony, attacked uh, the attorney general and called her a hack and this sort of thing. And 20 minutes after he was off the stand, uh, there was a Truth Social meme with a quote from him and a picture of her on his Truth Social account quoting him from his testimony. So they're absolutely making use of this to rile the base, to get donations, uh, to you know pursue his presidential campaign. Let's talk about John Eastman. Uh-huh. John Eastman recently appeared on 60 Minutes. Uh, this is, you know, the the former the law professor who came up with the theory about how a vice president could overturn an election result if they didn't like it. John Eastman is in bar proceedings in California about whether he should be disbarred. I can't believe this. They've taken 32 days of testimony in these proceedings. Yeah, that is very unusual for a state bar case, even in California. That is a lot of testimony. I mean, that's really long for a criminal trial, right? Yeah, exactly. So it has not been going well for John Eastman before the California bar. Some of the inside politics you need to know about this is that it's not just about John Eastman. It's about the California bar being embarrassed that it is widely perceived as dropping the ball on disciplining lawyers recently. There's been some very high-profile cases of high-profile lawyers who have gotten away with repeated misconduct. Uh, One of them is our good old friend Michael Avenatti. Another is uh, an infamous guy uh, named Tom Girardi. And there's been this this idea that the California State Bar just doesn't discipline or police lawyers. And here they're really leaning into, well, yes, we do. We're taking this very seriously. So this testimony has all been about— Although, uh, sorry, before we get into that, there's something a little bit odd about that as a strategy though, right? Because both Michael Avenatti and Tom Girardi were stealing money from clients. And so if the message that you get out here is basically, oh, we will, we will act very seriously if you do something that's extremely high profile and political in a way that is unpopular with lawyers in California. I mean, setting aside the merits of the John Eastman discipline, this this doesn't do anything to tell me that they're going to focus on, you know, who's who's stealing disability settlements from their clients. Josh, A, I didn't say it was a good strategy. <laughs> And B, baby steps for the California State Bar. Baby steps, Josh. Okay. Uh, So they have basically very thoroughly established with testimony from all sorts of people that Eastman's theories about how, you know, uh, Vice President Pence could overturn the election and all this stuff were sheer nonsense. And they crossed a threshold uh, last week where the state bar judge made what's called a, a preliminary finding of culpability. 
the judge basically said, okay, I'm making this preliminary finding that you have violated the code of professional conduct. And what that does is it opens up uh, the rest of the trial to evidence in aggravation or mitigation, going to punishment. What should the consequence be? That is going particularly badly for Eastman, because uh, one of the key things that the state bar looks at if they decide you've done something wrong is what is your attitude about it? And uh, John Eastman's attitude is as arrogant, defiant uh, as it's ever been. I mean, he was asked uh, about public statements he's he's made and he admitted, yeah, I, I don't think I should be disbarred. I think the prosecutors in this case should be disbarred, which is like the way to make sure you get disbarred is to show that you have complete contempt for the process. You're defiant. You think you did absolutely nothing wrong. You have no remorse, no regret. Uh, so this is not going to have a good outcome for him, nor I think is going on 60 minutes. 60 minutes is one of the, it just, it just eludes me why people go on 60 minutes unless it's purely for a story about how awesome they are. Uh, because you just know you're going to get eaten alive. And, and he went on and, um, he was defiant and arrogant and obnoxious as, as he is. And, you know, they ate him alive. They talked about his, his, you know, testimony in Georgia claiming that there were 2,500 convicts voting and 10,000 dead people and how the investigation showed it was actually, you know, four. And his response is, well, I don't think they investigated right. And, you know, all these disputed facts, blah, blah, blah. He looked terrible. And that's going to come back on him in the Georgia uh, RICO case. Oh, right. I forgot that he's a defendant in the Georgia RICO case. He is a defendant in the Georgia Rico case, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So this is because I was going to ask in terms of, you know, he was unlikely to convince the California bar here, I think. And if he's trying to build a career as a, you know, now he's a conservative political figure and martyr. and They took away his law license for trying to protect Donald Trump, who had the election stolen from him, blah, blah, blah. The idea of going on 60 Minutes and having some liberal media reporter you know, say, you know, look, you said all of this stuff and we don't and, and it's obviously not true. It's not clear that that hurts him as someone whose next career clearly has to be as a political figure and political operative. But there is this issue of, you know, could he go to prison in Georgia? Uh, right. And uh, that's very plausible. And particularly as uh, the DA in Georgia continues to flip defendants uh, and turn them into cooperators of questionable quality, but still cooperators. So, yeah, I think you're right that he's going on the um, uh, the conservative uh, victimology tour, and, and that's his uh, future. He's going to be sort of the conservative equivalent of Michael Cohen. Um, maybe he'll have a podcast. Uh, and uh, But, you know, first he's going to get slammed hard by the California State Bar, largely because of his attitude. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Eileen Cannon just briefly. Uh, there's this issue of scheduling where the we're supposed to have a trial. It starts in March in Judge Chuckin's courtroom in D.C. Uh, in theory, the, the documents trial in Florida is scheduled to start in May. And now there's a lot of thorny issues about classified documents in that case. Uh, and so Judge Cannon had a hearing uh, a few weeks ago where the, the question was basically, can we really go to trial in this case in May? Do we need to postpone that? Uh, the president would like the trial to be moved until after the election, which is convenient. Uh, so now there's been further back and forth between the two sides uh, about that scheduling question. Right. So part of it is just uh, that the trial date was always somewhat optimistic and aggressive, given how complex the case is because of the national security and the classified document issues. And Trump has very much been pushing the idea that he can't prepare for trial in two places. He can't be preparing for trial in D.C. in front of Judge Chutkin in March and be preparing for a trial in May. 
uh, in Florida. And that's actually fairly a uh, fair point. Uh, it's really difficult to do that, particularly when you have the same lawyers on both cases. Uh, and J- Judge Cannon has been receptive to this and to arguments that the discovery process, classified document process is taking too much time. You know, Josh, from the start, everyone has been monitoring her very carefully to see, is she going to do big, splashy things in favor of Trump to tank the case? And I, I think she still has not. And I think sort of her irritation with the government uh, over scheduling things and how they're dealing with the discovery is within the broad penumbras of the way you expect a federal judge to act in a case. N- nothing like super incriminating or, or that you can point to, oh, that's obviously, you know, an abuse of discretion. Um, what is kind of amusing here is that Trump was simultaneously telling her you need to delay this trial because of the D.C. case and telling Judge Chutkin you need to stay this case and continue the trial while we hash out my defense of presidential immunity. Now, Judge Chutkin isn't going to do that, but Jack Smith rather snidely pointed this out to Judge Cannon, that he was talking out of both sides of his mouth about whether or not the case is conflicted. So two things about that. One is that Judge Cannon then issued this order basically saying that that the government didn't have leave to file that notice with her, uh, that if you want to say something over 200 words, you have to ask the court's permission to say another thing, and that in the future, if something like that is filed, she's just going to strike it from the record. Um, It was a petty response to a petty filing, so completely (laughs) appropriate. But also, I mean, in the abstract, is... if there are two cases that you're involved in and they the schedule is jointly unreasonable, is there anything improper about arguing in both courts for adjusting the schedule? I mean, you don't you know the you don't know that the other court is going to agree to the thing you're asking for. You don't. I think probably most lawyers would say the better practice is to be upfront in both courts about what your stance is in the other court. Uh, right. So it doesn't look like you're being disingenuous. So if I were drafting it, I would say, you know, we've asked for a stay in that court. However, there's been no ruling and we don't know what to expect uh, like that. Uh, I think that would be particularly if you had a judge that was hostile to you, that would be something I think you would do. There's a there's litigation over Mark Meadows's book, and it's actually tangentially related to the documents case before Judge Cannon. Mark Meadows had a book that came out at the end of 2021 about his time as chief of staff to Donald Trump. The book turned out to be mostly about how the election was stolen from Donald Trump by the liberal media and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the, the it's so unfair. Um, so anyway, Mark Meadows wrote that book. And listeners may remember there's the whole episode where Donald Trump brandishes the Iran war plan in a meeting at Bedminster. That was a meeting with Mark Meadows' ghostwriters. Uh, the process of getting that book written um, was one of the... was involved one of the acts that ended up uh, being related to what Donald Trump has been indicted for down in Florida. Uh, But Mark Meadows has his own trouble about his book because Meadows has had to testify in various contexts. And there's been news reporting uh, about him testifying recently in ways that contradict stuff that's in the book saying that, you know, the 2020 election wasn't stolen, uh, that, you know, he told the president not to try to steal the election, et cetera, et cetera. And so Mark Meadows' book publisher basically says, you breached your contract by lying in your book and saying that this stuff was, was stolen when it wasn't. And furthermore, you damaged the economic value of your book uh, by leading people to believe that what you said in the book wasn't true. And therefore, we would like your advance back and we would like some damages. They're asking for six hundred grand. Uh, here over uh, Mark Meadows' book, creatively called The Chief's Chief. And yeah, they're saying that, you know, there's been this burst of publicity over the last few months 
claiming that Mark Meadows is cooperating. And you remember Donald Trump had an intemperate response, as one would expect. The interesting thing here is, I mean, we don't have transcripts of his testimony. This is all leaks and insider sources and things like that. And so this case, which which basically points out that he signed a contract saying everything in this book is true, uh, and the book says that this is all true, this case is pled largely based on what's called information and belief. So uh, that's a term of art for civil pleadings where you say on information and belief, we think this happened. And that's a way of saying, well, we don't know for sure yet, but we're going to find out in discovery. Uh, not all courts will let you get away with a lot of information and belief pleading, nor should they. And here, you know, you've got Meadows basically continuing to bluff and saying in public, no, I haven't cooperated. No, this all isn't true. But, you know, that could very much come out in this, in discovery, although it's complicated because if he testified before the grand jury, um, you, you can't get the grand jury transcript in order to uh, promote a, a lawsuit about a book. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. But I enjoyed the idea that they're asking for some of the $350,000 back. They're asking for compensation for the ghostwriter uh, they had to pay because, you know, Mark Manners writes about the way you expect he writes <laughs> and, uh, you know, promotional expenses, printing expenses, all that type of thing. Uh, so it, it's going to be a, a nice, uh, violent, bitchy slap fight that I think we're all going to enjoy. So I'm mean, just to, to clarify one thing. If Mark Meadows has been testifying about these these facts to Jack Smith's team before a federal grand jury, that doesn't necessarily mean uh, that he is cooperating. It's it's possible that they I mean, the ABC News reporting is that is that Mark Meadows was granted immunity, which right. would then mean that he would have to testify whether or not he wants to. So cooperating generally means like you have a cooperation agreement with the government right. that governs your relationship with them and what you're doing for them. He may just have, you know, been testified under subpoena and been forced to by a grant of immunity. That's different than cooperating. But the implication is, by all reports, that what he said contradicts what's in this book, that he admitted that he perceived and everyone else perceived the election was not stolen and that he uh, told that to Donald Trump. And that, of course, uh, for this new publisher, All Seasons Press, is very embarrassing because, I mean, you know, the people who publish Tucker and uh, I, I like this one you point out, Josh, Levi's unbuttoned. The woke mob took my job but gave me my voice. I mean, that's a, that's an imprimatur of quality, Josh. You can't just, you know. Don't forget, they, they published Naomi Wolf's recent book about the, the COVID-19 conspiracy to take away of all of our freedoms and our precious bodily fluids. Is that one the one where the clouds are following us? <laughs> <laughs> but so I, this book publisher, who I don't feel that much sympathy for, I mean, can can you really just be like, you know, this person lied in his book, he has to give us all of his money back? Because especially when I look at the complaint that the book publisher has filed here, they start with what sounds like a very garden variety author versus editor complaint, which is that they say we sort of expected when we asked the chief of staff to write a book that it would be like other chief of staff books about the job of being chief of staff to the president. And instead, he turned in this manuscript that was all about the election and the aftermath and the alleged theft. And so first of all, they just they don't like editorially what they've gotten. It's not what they were expecting. And they're looking at it and they're like, this kind of sucks. And then they make all these claims about how he impaired the economic value of the book with these with these public statements and with these news reports about that he was cooperating. But this book was was published in December 2021, and they're talking about events from mid-2022 and 2023, and basically claiming that's hurting sales. And look, you know, like, if your book is not selling six months after it was published, 
how people feel about you at that point is unlikely to affect the book sales that much because really, you know, the, when when the book was going to sell was right at the beginning. And so it looks to me basically like they they regret their economic decision to pay for this book that ended up not being very good. And now they're looking for a way to get their money back. I think you're right. And I, and I think the time for them to raise the complaint that what he delivered is not what he promised was when he delivered it and not right. when they went ahead and published it, because that seems to me to be, in effect, kind of waving uh, that argument. Yeah, it's petty. And uh, I mean, this industry where you, you put out these schlocky books from uh, elbow throwing politicians, uh, you know, it, it's not something where you expect them to have lasting value and uh, they're still going to be uh, a hot ticket item after a couple of years. Isn't is there also an element where basically if, you know, if you commission a book from someone to, you know, argue that, you know, that Elvis killed JFK or whatever and they hand in the manuscript and you publish it and then two years later, you're like, I'm shocked to discover that Elvis did not kill JFK and I'm horrified that our author misled us by, by sending us a manuscript saying these claims that he assured us were true and that we believed were true. Is there an element of like when you should have known all along that this was nonsense, that you that you can't claim that you relied on the warranties there? Absolutely. Uh, it's the defense of waiver uh, <laughs> or, or latches or any of these other um, defenses where basically you knew and you published it anyway. Again, the right, the right time to do something is when they he submits this this uh, piece of shit and everyone knows it's crazy <laughs> and they publish it anyway because that's yeah. what they're in the business of doing is publishing crazy shit. Yeah. So uh, Mark Meadows has lots of problems, but I, it sounds like we don't we don't think his publisher is going to get the damages here. Uh, they might, but mostly it's the lawyers are going to make money. Okay. Let's talk about Lizzo. I'm very excited for this. So pop star Lizzo. Uh, you may have seen in the news that she's been sued for sexual harassment and discrimination by some of her former backup dancers. Um, and there are these fairly lurid claims about fat shaming and, you know, and various conduct that is both bad and contrary to Lizzo's public image uh, as someone who is a body positivity figure and that sort of thing. So there was a bunch of negative press about this from Lizzo. And now Lizzo has filed an anti-slap motion which I was surprised to hear. I mean, we normally talk about these in defamation cases, but Lizzo is claiming that by suing for sexual harassment, her former employees are engaged in a strategic lawsuit against public participation, trying to prevent her from engaging in artistic expression. Is that right? Yes. So that part of it is not as crazy as you might think. So uh, Lizzo hired uh, Lavely and Singer, run by Martin Singer, who basically is the firm to go to if, if you believe that poor people should only have as many free speech rights as rich people deign to give them. And basically the firm where if, if they're representing you, you know you're the bad guy, you're the baddie. <laughs> so very heavy-handed on behalf of celebs. They come in, they file this anti-slap motion that has... 18 declarations from all the other employees saying none of this ever happened. She's a delight. You know, uh, butterflies stream out of her ass. Nothing would, would ever go wrong uh, with her. And therefore, this case is bogus. And also, it's a slap suit because uh, it's tied up with her artistic expression. Now, normally, you wouldn't think of sexual harassment or racial harassment or uh, disability discrimination or that type of thing to be slap suits to be things directed at speech. But there is this narrow zone where uh, if the speech is intertwined with artistic expression, where one of those claims can potentially fall under the anti-slap statute. 
So there's a case that they cite correctly a few years ago with um, Marlon Wayans, who is sued by a sort of a a bit player or extra on the set of a movie. I think it was uh, Haunted House 2 or something like that, uh, claiming basically that Wayans made all sorts of racial jokes and slurs and was... Uh, um, you know, offending him. You know, they're both black. And uh, what the court said was, well, this is all happening on set during the creative process. So uh, therefore, it is part of protected expression. That doesn't mean that the defendant automatically wins. It means that the person filing the anti-slap motion clears the first part of uh, the process. And then the burden shifts to the plaintiff to show they have a possibility of winning. So here, I think that probably Lizzo, through her lawyers, has made a plausible argument that the things they're complaining about are part of the creative process. That's her burden filing the motion. That shifts the burden to the plaintiffs to show they can possibly prevail. Here's where Lizzo, I think, loses and why the motion is is not particularly serious. She does this with, you know, a blitzkrieg, you know, 18 declarations from 18 people saying none of this ever happened. That's not the way an anti-slap motion works. Um, all you have to do is the plaintiff is come forward with some evidence, which if believed would be enough to satisfy your claim. So if they just come back with declarations from the plaintiff saying this is what she did on these dates, then they win. You know, you can have 100 declarations on the defense side, and just one on the plaintiff side, and the plaintiff still wins that. It, you really only win an anti-slap motion when they can't find any admissible evidence or when the speech is absolutely protected as a matter of law, like if you're being sued for a statement of opinion or a mere insult or something like that. So I think this is mostly uh, by Lizzo taking back the narrative, getting her side out there, attacking the plaintiffs, showing force, that type of thing. So when, when you talk about the, the protected nature of the underlying activity, and often when we talk about these slap motions, we're, we're talking about, as, as you say, statements of opinion. Some of the causes of action here are things like assault and false imprisonment. And so obviously, you know, the, the fact that you're engaged in a creative process doesn't allow you to assault people or to falsely imprison people. And so in, in that instance, if the plaintiff can marshal an argument like, you know, she actually did these things to me then it survives, you know, it doesn't matter that it was a creative process. Exactly. So, uh, you know, if we're in a play and you slap me and it's part of the play, then that's probably not a valid assault claim. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, you could use an anti-slap on that. You have to understand the distinction between the anti-slap applies and you win. So right. the first hump they just have to get over is the anti-slap statute applies to this conduct. And it does because it's intertwined with artistic expression. But that doesn't mean uh, that the defendant wins. It just means that a plaintiff then has to come forward with evidence. Mm -hmm. So you're, t you're talking about these 18 declarations, and some of them are of the nature of like, I never saw her do this or, you know, like, right. you, know, I, you know, I was never sexually harassed and that sort of thing. And so that sounds like questions for a trial, right? Like, you know, uh, you could exactly. advance evidence that basically, you know, here's all these people who say that the, the work environment was not like this, but that's not something that allows you to get the case dismissed. You'd have to have a, you'd have to have a finding of, of fact at whatever the burden of proof is, and exactly. that would be evidence, but it's not dispositive evidence. That's correct. So that's why the second part of an anti-slap motion, where whether the plaintiff can come forward with some evidence, is like the summary judgment standard. So the defendant only wins if there's no admissible evidence sufficient 
to carry the day where no trier of fact could possibly find this is evidence that would allow you to win. So again, you know, in 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 the uh, the classic example, if a hundred people say the light was red and you ran it, and one person says it's green, uh, the person saying it's green wins uh, mm -hmm. because there's a dispute. Right. So should we expect this to go to trial unless Lizzo settles with the plaintiffs? Uh, I think it's very possible. Uh, however, uh, this is strategic in part because one of the things about an anti-slap motion in California is that if you file it, even if you lose, you can appeal immediately. So I think in the likely event that she loses this, because, again, uh, there's a dispute of fact over what she did, I think that they then appeal it immediately and it's stuck in the Court of Appeals for a couple of years. Okay. Well, we'll be, we'll be watching that for whether there are future opportunities to talk about Lizzo on this show. Ken, thank you so much for speaking with me as always. Thank you, Josh. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with more soon. See you next time.